Can we bow our heads and uh, pray together? Lord, uh, we ask that you would reverse that uh, sentence of judgment in the hearing of your word this evening. We ask that uh, we might indeed see you with our eyes, hear you with our ears, understand you with our hearts, and turn and be healed. Amen. Well, by comparison with uh, many in Norfolk Church, 150 years is not that long. But it is a very distinctive uh, ministry. For most of that 150 years, this uh, church has been what we call an evangelical church. By which we mean that uh, it holds to the good news of Jesus. The evangel of an evangelical, or evangelism, is simply the Greek word behind uh, the Gospels themselves, the, the good news of Jesus. And if it's true that for most of that time it's been an evangelical church, what does it mean that there has been that good news? What is that good news? Well, one of the things that this evening's reading tells us is, most simply of all, it is possible to encounter God and to find that life-giving, not life-destroying. It is possible to encounter God and to do so face-to-face. It is possible to encounter God and to come away from the experience, not burned up. It is possible to encounter God and to come away clean. That word, clean, is an important word at the very start of our reading. If you closed during the prayer, then do please open it again, page 690. In the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was, uh, obviously, a king, and he had a very prosperous reign, in fact. He was king for, we think, 52 years. But in those days, you were very rarely king uh, on your own. More likely, what uh, you'd have done is, um, as your own father entered failing health, you'd have kinged it with him for a while. Then when he died, you'd have been king on your own for a stretch. And then when you went into failing health, your own son would come along and king it with you for a bit. So he was actually around for 52 years, but about just over 20 years uh, before he died, he did something uh, that is a really big deal in the uh, worship of his people. He went into the temple and he, he burned incense to God. That was a role that only the priests were allowed to do, and there was a very strong division of responsibilities in the ancient people of God. There were the priests, uh, there were the prophets, and there were the kings. And they were carefully set up, each to fulfill their own roles. And it was a major deal if you crossed the boundary. As a king, he should have got on with kinging it, but he didn't. He, uh, he, He wanted something from God, and he went and he burned incense as part of the prayers of the temple. That actually, as an act, polluted the temple. 
And there would have been a sense, I'm imagining, that as that king, in in, um, judgment, was struck with leprosy, that's the judgment that's recorded against him, and things kind of go wrong after that, that God's blessing was no longer on the people. But in the year that King Uzziah died, the vision of God comes back to the temple. There is that possibility, again, of uh, the people encountering their God. And then the story in front of us this evening has five moments to it that we just need to kind of pick out and then we'll uh, think about them uh, in relation to our own life. First of all, Isaiah, the prophet, sees the Lord. Uh, You don't have to know very much of your Old Testament to know that no man can see God and live. That was the great judgment that was permanently fixed in the Old Testament. So already we know something extraordinary is happening. I saw the Lord. And every signal that's coming along in these first verses is designed to tell us that something amazing is happening. He uh, seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God was not contained within the little space that was most particularly his. If you look at the uh, plans for the building of the temple, uh, there uh, there was a huge uh, area that everyone could go into, and then there were more and more restricted areas until you came to the, the most holy place, which used to be in older translations, called the Holy of Holies. And in that place, only the high priest could go, and in that place, the encounter with God took place. Not here. The train of his robes, just the, little, the littlest part of him, fills the whole temple. Above him, there are seraphs. Some, we think of them as some kind of angels, but we don't really know. Each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. It's not actually going to matter what they see in this story. There are other stories of seraphs where they're full of eyes, in fact. But here they cover their faces because it doesn't matter what they see. What matters is what they hear and speak. With two, they needed to fly. And with two, they covered their feet. It was not left to them to decide where they were going to go. They moved, uh, as in the vision of a later prophet, Ezekiel, entirely at the behest of the Lord God. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Not just in the holy of holies. The train of his robe fills the temple and the whole earth is full of his glory. It's not surprising that with this kind of vision, songwriters and hymn writers have uh, had a field day. And already we've, we've sung lots of songs that draw on this set Uh, of image. I was careful to say earlier on, that little space, that it was a cube, cubic space, the center of the temple. It was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Because there is no way in, um, uh, in Hebrew, the original language, of saying most holy place. So you have to double up, holy of holies. There's a, there's a point, I can't remember where it is, where instead of saying pure gold, it says gold of gold. So, 
register that, that you have to double up the words to really get the, the maximum impact for something. But here, Isaiah hears the words tripled up. This is going beyond holy. It's going beyond holy of holies. It's holy, holy, holy. This is the, the most anyone ever gets to say in Scripture about God. The whole earth is full of this God's glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So Isaiah saw the Lord, but he was still kept away. Uh, The the smoke uh, got in the way. He could not see more. And the doorposts themselves were shaking, so uh, you wouldn't have tried to go through. That is the vision of God. That's one moment, the vision. Next, uh, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. And the word there, me, it it connects to to silenced. Uh, In these ancient cultures, uh, what you are comes out of, 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 of how you speak. I don't mean in the sense of with an accent or whatever. What I mean is that there is that identity of uh, that what you speak expresses exactly who you are. That's how it's kind of meant to be. So not to, to speak, to be silenced, is no longer to be able to be yourself. <clears throat> I am ruined says Isaiah, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am put to silence. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. If you go back over the first five chapters of Isaiah, you'll see again and again a record of the people's sin, their lack of integrity, in that what they spoke did not express what they were. They were, they were hypocritical. This is a time of enormous prosperity, in the life of the people, but not a prosperity that God recognizes and says, isn't it fantastic that you're flourishing? But rather a prosperity that is built on lack of integrity, on injustice, on exploitation. And God is very angry. There is the vision of God first, uh, the prophet is silenced second, and then what's going to happen about it? Then one of the seraphs, verse uh, 6, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. They, they knew what that meant. The atonement of sin is that sense of the separation uh, that there is between us and God, being overcome, being dealt with, Not by uh, the work of the individual to to get back to God, because that was impossible. Faced with a vision like this, you don't say, hang on, I'll come over to you. On the contrary. Atonement means God steps in to cover the sin, the gap, between his holiness and our imperfection, our unholiness. They knew that that's what the temple existed for. It was its very purpose. The whole thing was there for atonement. 
that God should be able to dwell amongst his people without them being destroyed by their sinfulness. And the, uh, the seraph comes along with his coal from the fire and cleanses Isaiah's lips so that uh, he can speak again. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. I can't claim it's at the very center of this message, but something strikes me as quite surprising about this vision. If you took it only up to verse 7, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for, I think we would kind of forgive uh, the passage if it then said uh, something along the lines of, and I got to be with God from then on. You know that bit in Psalm 23 where it ends and says, and I shall dwell in your house forever. We would forgive it, wouldn't, wouldn't we, if it said, your sin is atoned for, and now you get to be with me in my house forever. But that's not what it says. There's no moment here when uh, Isaiah, the prophet, gets to sort of hang around with God. It gets, it gets spun immediately. He turns up at the temple, sees this vision, uh, sin, atonement, and then gets sent straight out again. Here am I, send me. In response to the question, who will go for us? That's the fourth moment, the moment of service after the vision and the silencing and the atonement. And then we come to these very troubling words. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Go with my message and they will hear not a word of it. Now, that's terrifying, isn't it? That God should, by his word, let his servant know that judgment is against his people in that way. It's not, if you don't repent, something terrible is going to happen to you. This is the something terrible. I am making it impossible to repent because you will not... I'm, Denying you the opportunity of truly hearing my word. And yet, as we kind of start to think about shifting this around and moving this forward, there is hope even in those words. Let's um, rerun them. We've had the vision of God, the moment of silencing, the atonement of the coal, the here am I, send me, and then the judgment. And one question we kind of have to ask is, how much is this a pattern? Is this normal? Or, Or to put it differently, which bits of it are normal? What can we say 
we can take from this passage? Is it merely of interesting history? Or is there something we can do with it? And I want to suggest that, yes, there is a pattern. But it does take a little working out. I'm assuming that relatively few of us have um, been in a temple and observed seraphs with six wings flying around a vision of God. If I'm wrong, would you just please put your hand up? Well, there we go. And yet, many of us will bear witness that we have in some way encountered the living God of heaven and earth, the God whose glory fills all the earth. So there is some connection. That uh, sense of uh, a a cleanness coming because God touches your life, again, many of us can bear witness to, I suspect. Not with a live tongue from a coal, from a live coal, uh, from an altar fire, but because in some way we have encountered the person of Jesus Christ. We have heard the story of his life, of his death on a cross, of the claims made for that death by him and by those who followed soon after, that his death dealt with all that separated us from God, not uh, not on a daily basis like the temple sacrifices, but once and for all. We, many of us, have that story in common. Many of us, no doubt, know that experience, too, of having a sense of vocation from God's Holy Spirit, that the calling on our life to enter into God's service. There are points of connection. The one that still troubles us, though, I suspect, is that be ever hearing but never understanding. And yet, this is not a pattern. This is not a little abstraction that could have happened at any time. It just happened to be uh, a few centuries before Jesus. This is part of the story of the Old Testament, And we can say that if impossibly, if impossibly, they had heard and they had understood, what it would have demonstrated is that the law of God, in terms of the Old Testament, was quite adequate to deal with human sin. And if it was quite adequate to deal with human sin, then Jesus would not have been necessary. It is precisely in this judgment that your salvation and mine is wrapped up because we know that deeper than this judgment on one people goes the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the atonement for the world, to all peoples. And unless God had passed this judgment on that people, there would have been no Jesus to come and proclaim peace and reconciliation to all peoples. This is not a little abstract moment that could have happened any time. It is part of the story, and the story at this point says that God must judge his people so that, in the brackets, as it were, that come after, there may be a new covenant that you and I live in tonight. 
Well, we have no temple. What experience can we enter into from what Isaiah had to say? He says, I am ruined. He experiences God's holiness and he says, I am ruined. He is sent out at the end with a message of judgment until the cities lie ruined and their fields. There is either the ruin of Isaiah because of God's holiness or the ruin of the fields and the cities because of God's judgment. We don't have either of those. So what are we supposed to say to our world if we are those who have read this story? Is it just a nice thing to turn into songs? Because it's a neat little story of a, a, a person, a human being's encounter with a living God. Well, I, I want to make a suggestion to you. If you find it helpful, useful, tell me afterwards. What strikes me here is that Isaiah hears no message of condemnation on himself. We know from what he says later on that he experiences himself as a man of unclean lips. But there is no one in this story early on who says, Ye, Isaiah, you're a man of unclean lips. And what that says to me is that when we go to the world, it might not be that, that these moments, this pattern, is one that says, my job is to go into the world tomorrow and to tell the people that I encounter that they are sinners against a holy God, that there is an atonement, the other side of which lies a, a satisfying service of the living God. What, what Isaiah's experience tells me is that it was the encounter with a holy God that left him knowing his own lack of holiness. No one had to say, Isaiah, you're a sinner. It was the exposure to who God is that did that for him and left him saying, woe to me. Now, 150 years ago, when this church went up, there was a kind of social model. Everyone would have known, because of the culture they moved in, what sin was in the words of the church. It was transgression. It was breaking the rules of God. It was a culture that understood rules, and the, the rules, and the, everyone was supposed to stay in their place, and you weren't supposed to break rules, and sin was a breaking of the rules. We may have limited success today, if we go to our friends and neighbours saying, you are a rule breaker. And because you break God's rules, God knows you to be a sinner and you're in deep trouble. Some, I'm not saying we should never do that. There may be times when that is the right thing to do. The question that interests me as I engage with this passage, though, is what is it that we are trying to convey to the world that will key into what sin is in our own generation. And I can only make a suggestion, because it has to be a suggestion. You can't read it straight off at Scripture. 
when I pastoral experience as much as anything, I suppose, the people I spend time with, I catch a sense that sin for many today is not a breaking of the rules, unless it's a tabloid headline, but a sense of being wrapped up in yourself and of knowing that that's not enough. Of, of recognizing that you can have all the tools, all the toys, all the possibilities that life opens up to you. And actually knowing that you're in, deep inside, you're just closed up. That no one's getting through. That you are, in a sense, on your own. We have these extraordinary possibilities for touching so many lives. How many of you have sent an email or been on Facebook today? Or made a phone call? Yeah, no Martin Cottermans, because he left something on my Facebook, yes. Yeah. We've got all those possibilities And yet, has there ever been a culture that's ever felt so alone? And so for many in the world that we will go to, sin is not a breaking of the rules, but a sense that you're wrapped up in yourself and you kind of don't know how to get out of it. And at that point, what I want to suggest is that while we may not have a temple we can take them to, and some seraphs to... Uh, spot with binoculars. Uh, we can still introduce them to a story of a man, of a man called Jesus, who breaks through all that sin is in any generation, because there is those resources in that story to deal with that sense of breaking the rules, but also to deal with that sense of actually you feel like you're on your own. You feel ashamed because you know yourself and you know that that's not what you want to be, but you kind of don't want to acknowledge it because someone out there may not like it. A sense that all is not as it should be, a sense of cut-offness. It would be easy for us to read this story and say, yes, that is the pattern. That is the pattern of encounter with God. And we are wrong if we do that. It is a pattern. But starting there is the pattern of encounter with God. Put that pattern into people's hands, as as we do when we do Christianity Explored and things like it. And that encounter is holy, 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 if you like. It's four times as holy. It's not just the temple. The temple was pretty good as an encounter, as a place to encounter God. But the New Testament of this book is even better as a place in which to encounter the living God of heaven and earth whose glory fills the whole world. Isaiah, is a, Isaiah 6 is a, is a great story. It is a great pattern. And, and we kind of long sometimes for its simplicity. But actually when we encounter, and many of us will have this testimony, this witness, that when we encounter the story of Jesus, we may not find Jesus saying, Roy, you're a sinner. We may not find Jesus saying, Elizabeth, you're a sinner. Because that's not what the words come out and say to us. But just like Isaiah, it was as he experienced who God is that he knew the rest that mattered that he was a sinner, 
And once he knew he was a sinner, then the rest of the story could open up. And it is as we encounter the story of Jesus, as we offer the story of Jesus, that it becomes possible for all the other bits to open up. The New Testament is a much more accurate place in which to encounter God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so let us, let it, do its work. What is the service that we offer? What is the message that we go with? Not be ever hearing and never understanding. But please, read this. Just don't, 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 Panic, I'm not asking you a great deal. Just sit and read this. I'll read it with you if you like. But read this. And in the eyes and the ears of those we care about, there will be a promise of encountering God that is much more extraordinary than even Isaiah knew. Let us let it do its work and allow ourselves to be more amazed by this than Isaiah was in his day. Can we pray together? And I do want to pray for any who may have that sense that life is simply not as it should be. Who may not be sitting here this evening thinking, well, I've broken 30 laws of God today. But just that sense that all is not as it should be. Let's pray. Lord, uh, in any gathering this size, there will be those who are feeling cut off. Cut off from you, cut off from other human contact. In some way, almost feeling separated from themselves. Not together. A sense of chaos and life falling apart without integrity, without coherence. And as we're reminded today in the mystery of of you as a set of relationships within yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so we pray that in our day you would impact us, we ourselves once again, with the story of Jesus Let him lead us to recognition of our own sin. To recognition of what he has done on the cross. To set things right and to cleanse us. To recognition of a magnificent calling that we should be allowed to bear the words of God. To recognition that the message we go for, we go with, yes, has judgment in it, but is not holy judgment as it was for Isaiah. For we know the words of life, they have come to us. We pray for ourselves, for any among us tonight, who do not yet have that sense of peace with you. And we pray that as we go into your world, you might give us confidence that the Lord Jesus Christ that we know has in his story resources more extraordinary and far more holy 
than any one man knew in the days of the temple. And this we ask, that he, Jesus Christ, might be glorified, the Father made known, and the Spirit call us forward.